What would you do with your life if you had forever to live it? How would you change? How would your priorities change? Today, I want you to think about just that. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Thinking is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last, even if that conversation is actually just you quoting Tuck Everlasting to someone who's never seen it before. My name is Kinsey Grant, and I am a journalist, the host of this show, and a person who's always struggled to imagine what I might look like when I'm old. Like, will I have gray hair? Is it weird to see an old woman who's also six feet tall? I've kind of always wondered. These days, though, I've been wondering a little more than usual. See, a few months ago, I went to a small gathering at the Miami home of a very accomplished tech entrepreneur. There were all sorts of people and ideas and also something called sipping vodka there, but one conversation from the many that were had that night has burrowed itself so deeply in my brain that I have not gone a single day without thinking about it for months now. That conversation was about the possibility of living forever. Of course it was. This small gathering was constituted of entirely wealthy men in their 40s and 50s, and then me and Josh. Now to those men, the idea of living forever, or at least for well beyond the expected lifespan we all face, was not science fiction. Many of them truly believed that there are people alive today, and even sitting on that back veranda, who would live to see their 150th birthdays. Imagine what your reality might look like when you hit 150 years old. For me, the year will be 2144. Hopefully we'll have solved climate change and we'll be on like web 7.4 or something and the world will be a vastly different place than it was when I was born or even than it is today. But do I want to live that long? Should anyone be able to live that long? I can't stop thinking about it, and that is why we are here today. Inevitably, as we extend lifespans with technology and modern medicine, we get cocky. We think about what it might look like to live not for a longer time, but forever. It breeds more questions than answers. Should life be infinite? And if it should, what are the implications of everyday people being able to live forever? Is it something for anyone or just for the wealthy? How would our economy, our social safety nets, our metrics for success, and so much more change if we lived beyond 100, 150, even 200 years old? And the uncomfortable question we have to ask, are we worthy of extending our lives beyond what's considered possible today? Who are we to decide that we should live forever? Let's start thinking about it. But first, a massive thank you to our friends at Fundrise for being this season's presenting sponsor. We have a really cool project coming out with Fundrise next week, and you'll hear more about what they're up to later in the episode. But also, I've been telling you about Fundrise for like eight weeks now, so just go download the app. I I promise you're going to love it. And second, believe it or not... There are only two more episodes of Thinking is Cool left in this season once you finish this one. So my ask for you is this. Why not make the most of it? Why not send this to a friend or a loved one? Why not start a conversation? Why not subscribe to my newsletter with the link that I blast all over the internet all the time? Why not? That's what I thought. Now... Let's talk about mortality, hot or not. As always, nothing is off limits. Everything is on the table. Take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool. And so are you. Every morning, I wake up and I do a few very specific things. I drink water with lemon. 
I wash my face and put on sunscreen, and I gulp down a cocktail of vitamins and supplements, a probiotic, an immune support complex, vitamin C, vitamin D, coconut oil, biotin, vitamin B12, and ashwagandha. None of these things is particularly fun, but I do them every single morning so that I can live not only a healthier, but a longer life. My mom told me that taking my vitamins would make me strong for a long time. The internet told me that drinking a gallon of water a day would do everything but solve world hunger. My dad's side of the family is prone to skin cancer, so I do my daughterly duty by lathering up in super goop every day. I take these active steps every single day to squeeze as much life as I can out of the one that I've been handed. I think we all do in our own small ways. My question for you, for myself, for all of us, though, is why? Why are we so preoccupied with, in all honesty, putting off the inevitable by just a few years? There's a lot to unpack psychologically with that question, and I'm not going to try to do it in the next 30 minutes, but I think it's in part because we humans are just that. Human. It's virtually impossible for us to imagine a world without ourselves. If I asked you to picture what happens after you die right now, you'd likely imagine heaven or hell or purgatory. Maybe you envision yourself as something of an omnipotent presence that sees everything but isn't seen itself. But regardless of what your imagined post-mortem reality is, you, your consciousness, your spirit, are part of it. We only know the world and consciousness through our own lens, and it's natural to want to extend that understanding, that consciousness, for as long as possible. Pair that ache to make this existence last with a modern ethos of applying technology to solve any problem, including, it would seem, mortality, and you find us where we are today, attempting to extend the human lifespan well beyond what we would consider possible. Today, I want you to honestly think about the implications of that attempt. While a lot of what we're talking about today is pretty cool and pretty inspiring and pretty wacky, it's also perhaps futile. Remember the second law of thermodynamics? We cannot outrun or outlast or outwit entropy, the wearing down and eventual death of all systems, the universe itself included. So go into this episode with an open mind. Feel free to wiggle around in your own hypothetical rabbit holes. But remember, we're just here to have fun and think hard and maybe learn something new. This episode is heady, but aren't the best ones usually that way? Let's jump in with an honest look at what it means to live forever. So what might immortality look like? In most cases, we are not talking about full-on living forever and never dying immortality. We're talking more about extending human life well beyond what we would consider possible and doing it sooner than you might think. From what I can understand of the longevity conversation, there are two incredibly important things to keep in mind before I start talking about redefining immortality and curing aging and all that good stuff. The first, We are already living longer thanks to modern marvels like medicine and technology and communication. Consider this from the New York Times. As medical and social advances mitigate diseases of old age and prolong life, the number of exceptionally long-lived people is increasing sharply. The United Nations estimates that there were about 95,000 centenarians in 1990 and more than 450,000 in 2015. By the year 2100, there will be 25 million. That's 25 million people who are older than 100 years old before this century is up. And the second important point to keep in mind, 
At least as far as we know, based on the laws of physics, there is no distinct theoretical limit to the length of the human lifespan. But nevertheless, determining the practical limits of the human life has occupied scientists and historians and ethicists for decades. I find this idea of determining a potential limit on human lifespan to be endlessly interesting. There's nothing to suggest to us that we cannot live forever. It's just that we age, and aging comes with ailments that kill us. If we didn't age or if we aged differently, we might still be kicking at 150 years old. See, we've known since like 1825 that the mathematical models of mortality do not indicate that we hit a point at which it's statistically impossible that we live to see our next birthday. Thanks to the British actuary Benjamin Gompertz, we know that the risk of death increases exponentially with age until it doesn't. As people enter old age, the risk of death actually plateaus. Now, British accent incoming for British actuary Benjamin Gompertz, The limit to the possible duration of life is a subject not likely ever to be determined, even should it exist, Gompertz wrote. Still, there is so much we don't know about our lifespans. In some ways, it's almost comforting. All we know is that we live and we die, and if we want to increase our chances of living longer, there are really only a few proven things we can actually do. Eating healthy, exercising, avoiding smoking, and actually castration for men, believe it or not. But everything else purported to extend our time in the realm of the living is honestly conjecture. Now, that's partially because it's really hard to study how people age, given that our natural lifespan is almost eight decades. It's a lot easier to run lifelong and efficient studies on animals like mice or worms with shorter lifespans. But it's also because of aging. Aging itself, which is the harbinger of some of our most lethal ways to go, like cancer and dementia and heart disease, is not considered a disease by the Federal Drug Administration. It's actually just a risk factor. That means, as courts put it, quote, pharmaceutical companies have had little incentive to create drugs that target aging, which means that foundations and companies have used funds to focus on treating specific diseases, end quote. That brings us to the first major learning for anyone thinking about living forever. Aging and dying are two very different things. I'm going to read you a quote from Quartz, which has some truly incredible journalism dedicated to the idea of hacking ourselves out of death. Here goes. The University of North Carolina Population Center analyzed data from the Centers for Disease Control and found that in 1910, infectious diseases like pneumonia, tuberculosis, and diarrhea accounted for 46% of all U.S. deaths. In 2010, those conditions accounted for only 3%. Accidents, kidney disease, senility, and cerebrovascular disease, which is a fancy term for problems with the brain's blood supply, were top 10 causes of death in both time periods. But the total numbers of deaths from these conditions declined 61% from 1910 to 2010. By far, the biggest killers in the developed world today are conditions like heart disease and cancer, diseases directly related to how long we're living. It's not necessarily that cancer is becoming more common, it's that more of us are living long enough to get it. Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, cancer, as far as the longevity community is concerned, We don't cure them individually, we cure them collectively. And we do it first by curing aging. 
I wanted to understand how we came to that conclusion that disease is a byproduct of aging, so I took to Twitter. And there, I came across Nathan Chang, a so-called longevity maximalist who's also the program director for OnDeck's longevity biotech cohort. A few DMs later, and Nathan and I were on the phone. These are all uh, diseases where the risk factor goes up exponentially as you age, right? So there's something going on there. And a lot, with a lot of these diseases, there's no uh, good solutions or, or therapies that are approved today. So really where the current situation is, we're kind of playing whack-a-mole with all these different diseases. And uh, this whole idea of actually trying to do something about aging or, or potentially end aging, uh, solve it in some sort of way, is to actually target you know, the cellular and molecular mechanisms that are responsible for the aging process, uh, you know, the thing that actually makes us uh, ill in older age, and actually try and uh, modulate those things, intervene with, you know, different technologies, you know, biotechnology therapies, could be, you know, drugs, uh, cell therapy, gene therapy, etc. We have to reconsider what it means to age. Sure, it means plucking a gray here and there and gaining plenty of wisdom and hopefully living to see some really cool shit, but it also means opening ourselves up to the possibility of age-related morbidity. It makes me wonder, is aging an inevitability or a condition to be treated? In the longevity community, it's both. As I explored what it meant to reconsider aging for this episode, I kept running into the story of Jean Camon, who, when she died at 122 years old, was the oldest recorded person who ever lived. The New York Times covered Calmont's life quite a lot, and I found this in a piece about what her life and death taught us to be compelling. Quote, As the years pass, our chromosomes contract and fracture, genes turn on and off haphazardly, mitochondria break down, proteins unravel or clump together, reserves of regenerative stem cells dwindle, bodily cells stop dividing, bones thin, muscles shrivel, neurons wither, organs become sluggish and dysfunctional, the immune system weakens, and self-repair mechanisms fail. There is no programmed death clock ticking away inside of us, no precise expiration date hardwired into our species, but eventually, the human body just can't keep going. Social advances and improving public health may further increase life expectancy and lift some supercentenarians well beyond Calmont's record. Even the most optimistic longevity scientists admit, however, that at some point, these environmentally induced gains will run up against human biology's limits. Unless, that is, we fundamentally alter our biology, end quote. Once we do that, though, alter our biology, there is no going back. So are we comfortable changing the biology that got us this far? The biology that got us walking on two feet, that got us civilization, that makes us age, but also got us love and lust and friendship. What else might we change when we change our biology? Let's take a short break to hear from our friends at Fundrise, and then we're going to find out. Everybody remembers the song Ironic by Alanis Morissette, right? The one that goes, it's, it's like Ryan on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. And I'll stop singing there. But it remains an anthem 25 years after it was released for a reason. Ironic or not, Alanis spoke to a universal truth we can all recognize. In a world ruled by fate and coincidence, you can't plan for much. 
The only thing we can rely on is change. And the only thing we can control about that change is how well prepared we are for it. If you plan ahead now, you'll be ready to face everything from 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife to a potentially uncertain financial future. One way I stay prepared for that second one, Fundrise. This first-of-its-kind investing platform helps everyday investors add private real estate to their investing portfolios. Fundrise implements a combination of strategies to build well-rounded, resilient portfolios targeted to deliver consistently strong returns based on your goals and your appetite for risk. Even better, it's the perfect way for my fellow 20-somethings to invest in real estate without having to buy a house. Fundrise has eliminated the expensive upfront cost of owning real estate by offering a minimum investment of only 10 bucks. Visit fundrise.com slash think, that's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash think to sign up for free and start investing in your future, no matter what lies ahead. Before you heard about how much money you can make investing in private real estate so that you have something to sustain you for the next 150 years, we were talking about the possibility of changing our human biology to evade the grim reaper, how to extend life by changing it. Spoiler, it's more than just drinking Soylent. There exists a handful of the rare breed of scientists and inventors and technologists with really good PR teams who essentially dominate modern discourse around extending human life. They're all quoted in the weekend editions and the New Yorker pieces, and they appear to fall into two major longevity camps. The first are these so-called health spanners who aim to give us healthier, longer lives followed by compressed morbidity or in lay people words, quick and painless death. The second are the so-called immortalists who view aging not as a biological inevitability, but a physical process that can be solved using some kind of technological advancement, like merging our brains with AI to exist in some way, shape or form forever. Nathan seems to fall more into the health spanners camp. And full disclosure, if I had to pick a camp, I'd be in that one too. What we're trying to do uh, in the longevity community is trying to, you know, just extend health. And I think everybody can get on board with that. You don't necessarily have to be into immortality or, or whatever. And uh, and even then, like, if you were to solve aging, that, that's, not, that's not the same thing as immortality anyways, because you, know, you if you solve aging, you can still get hit by a bus. It's a distinct and important difference. Even if we hack our way out of aging, we can never really guarantee physical immortality. Accidents happen. Our physical selves are imperfect. But what if we extend what we consider to be existence beyond just the physical? That's what some immortalists have in mind, including the famed futurist Ray Kurzweil. His transcendentalist view of longevity suggests that within just a few decades, technology will allow human beings to move beyond the physical and intellectual limitations of their biology. The idea is called singularity, and it suggests that by about 2045, AI and biotechnology will have rendered humankind effectively immortal. It's suggestive of something close to a digital consciousness— Physical chaos costs us our bodies all the time, and while we might be able to put off death for a good long while, it comes for us physically at some point or another. What Ray Kurzweil and others like him believe, though, is that we can continue to exist in new and different ways that are less physical. It should be noted, though, that uh, Ray Kurzweil plans to have his body cryogenically frozen and preserved in the off chance that immortality for the masses doesn't happen in his lifetime. That's the immortalist's view of living forever. But if we use the word forever as something less literal, we find ourselves in the health spanner's realm. 
as written in The New Yorker, these scientists focus on the timeline. Since 1900, the human lifespan has increased by 30 years, and so as a consequence have cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and dementia. Aging is the leading precondition for so many diseases that aging and disease are essentially metonyms. And also, metonyms are words that are so closely associated that they're used as substitutes for one another. Beyond these two approaches to living forever, the immortalists and the health spanners, there exists a cabal of weird and trippy ideas for extending human life that go well beyond cloning yourself and doing a brain transplant. There's senolytics, a kind of drug therapy designed to target zombie cells that cause aging and cell damage. There's parabiosis, or young blood transfusion, a scientifically murky and very unproven process by which one person's circulatory system is linked to another's to mimic its youthful biology. There are a few youth engineering drugs being researched, two of them FDA-approved, metformin, a drug used to treat diabetes, and rapamycin, a compound found oozing from an Easter Island bacterium in the 1960s and later used to prevent surgical implant rejection. But there's also germ theory, sanitation protocols, and modern medicine that have added decades to expected lifespans. We've been after immortality, or at least the extension of life, for as long as we've been sentient. But beyond these few potential treatments, the conversation of stopping aging in its tracks remains largely hypothetical. There is still quite a lot we don't know about the human experience of living and dying, despite the fact that we do it every single day. What we do know is this. Living forever and extending our healthy, functional lives are two different ideas. They require different research and different solutions. They have different standard bearers and different governing norms. What they have in common, though, is a central idea. Human ingenuity might be powerful enough to unshackle us from the one true certainty in this life, death. We are unraveling the idea that if we're lucky, we all get about 80 years and hopefully most of them will be good. A universal experience made universally questionable. What if we can escape this universal reality of aging and death, but we can't make it a universal option? Who then gets to live forever? Think on it while we take a short break to hear from Pluto and we will be right back. Everybody has deal breakers. For me, if someone is rude to a waiter, they're not in my life for long. If a pair of shoes costs more than 50 bucks and still gives me a blister, that brand is as good as it's done in my book. Chewing with your mouth open, can't even think about it. In my experience, from dating to shopping, it's always best to figure out your deal breakers as early as possible. You need evidence that this relationship, whether it's with a person or a pillow, will work out. With Pluto, I knew from the jump that all of my pillow deal breakers were easily accounted for. Pluto's custom-crafted pillows are worth the investment, and they're designed specifically to account for all of your weird and unique needs. They're crafted with you and your rest in mind, and they feature a modular design with an outer plush cover enclosing a solid foam core, a solid foam core that guarantees peaceful snoozing for even the most uneasy and particular sleepers. So how does Pluto do it? Well, via an in-depth questionnaire, Pluto first collects data on your unique sleeping patterns and your body type. Then using that data and their proprietary algorithm, Pluto creates the perfect pillow for you and ships it straight to your door where you have 100 nights to try it out risk-free in the comfort of your bed. And if you don't like it, send it back for a full refund using a prepaid label. 
Visit PlutoPillow.com slash thinking. That's P-L-U-T-O-P-I-L-L-O-W.com slash thinking today to fill out a quick questionnaire and get $10 off your first Pluto pillow. But if you're anything like me, it's not going to be your last. And one more thing, if you purchase a pillow this season, you'll enter to win a nighttime kit handcrafted by the great minds over here at Thinking is Cool. Picture Josh's go-to sleepy time tea, Allie's favorite silky eye mask, CBD gummies, and plenty of more goodies that pair perfectly with your pillow. We'll be announcing the winners this month, so stay tuned. Whether you are a health spanner or an immortalist or neither, you live in a world that could very well hack itself out of aging and the traditional ideas of dying in your lifetime. Science is effing crazy, and if the last year has taught us anything, it's that science can move fast, and the people who work in science, they are heroes, genius heroes. So let's say we crack the code. We end the condition of aging. We extend human life well beyond what's expected of it today. What happens? The social, ethical, and psychological implications are vast. I almost said this at the start of the episode, but I didn't want to spook everyone right away. Sometimes I get on my mic and I talk about problems and solutions and accountability. Other times I get on my mic and I ask questions. Today is a question day. If you asked me what living forever looks like or means, I wouldn't have an answer. I truly don't know how to form a conclusion on the idea of living forever, but I do know how to think about it after researching this episode for entire days at a time. So right now, I'm about to present you with some big brain problems that might actually be unsolvable. But from where I sit, writing a podcast that's all about being more thoughtful and questioning our shared experiences, that's okay. So let's talk then about the implications of potentially living forever. Ethical, social, logistical, and psychological. First and the most important is the ethical side of this conversation. Anyone who's purchased natural health supplements or even just a bunch of leafy greens knows that being healthy in an effort to live a longer, healthier life is not cheap. The reality is that even if we solved for aging and death tomorrow, millions of people would be unable to access the kind of healthcare that might make living forever an option. I mean, just think of the health discrepancies that already exist. In our country, in the United States of America, we're talking a lot right now about women's health care, about accessing critical care like abortions and birth control. In one of the world's most advanced and wealthiest countries, there are women who cannot get the care that they need. Zoom out. In America, dying of malaria would be crazy. But in underdeveloped countries, tons of people die every single day from things like malaria, HIV, and diarrhea. Things we have figured out here, but things we failed to figure out everywhere, ethically and equitably. As the New York Times put it, there are still dozens of countries where life expectancy is below 65, primarily because of problems like poverty, famine, limited education, disempowerment of women, poor public health, and diseases like malaria and HIV AIDS, which novel and expensive life-extending treatments will do nothing to solve. The cherry on top of all of this? Most of the people pulling the strings in the longevity community are rich old white dudes. You guessed it. And they are making tons of money in doing so. Let's turn again to quartz. Quote, the present day pursuit of physical immortality, or at the very least, a substantially extended lifespan is a booming business. 
Google has an aging research venture called Calico. Tech titans like Peter Thiel and Jeff Bezos are investors in startups focused on longevity. And entrepreneurs like Bulletproof Coffee founder Dave Asprey, who has publicly declared his goal of living to 180, have built lifestyle empires around their passion for biohacking. End quote. And I love this one from Quartz too. Quote, that Silicon Valley's titans believe innovation can help them crack death and aging makes intuitive sense. They've spent their entire careers quite literally banking on the idea that science and technology can solve the world's problems. In much of the same way, they're now both investing in and profiting from the idea that it's possible to outsmart death. Buoyed by the Valley's utopian impulses, these latest attempts to defeat death are an extreme expression of that exceptionalism that shows up throughout the tech sphere. The tech elite don't have to do their own laundry or shop for groceries or mattresses because there are apps for that. They don't have to submit to regulation or feel guilty about making outlandish amounts of money because their innovations are supposedly changing the world. Now they're hoping that they specifically don't have to die, a belief that could wind up having big consequences for everyone else." End quote. My question in all of this, Peter Thiel, Jeff Bezos, do we trust these kinds of people to determine what's a necessary medical intervention and what's extending life beyond reason? Can we trust them to be good moral stewards of mortality? I asked Nathan about this, and he suggested that it's a fair criticism. But when we think about longevity, we have to, of course, take the long view. It's probably going to be very expensive to access medicine and tools to live forever, but it won't always be that way. Patents run out, generic options hit the market, prices drop. But until then, we have a very big, very cumbersome question of access on our hands. Who gets to live forever? Hopefully not only the rich. Our next big implication of potentially living forever, the social kind. How might our lives and the ways we live them change if we are expected to live even just 20 or 30 years longer? Again, I have more questions and answers. Some of those questions? How long are we expected to work before retiring if we live for 100 plus years? How do we define success if we triple or quadruple our expected lifespans? How might our healthcare systems need to evolve to meet the needs of a larger population of centenarians? How do we plan for a family if we live to be 150, but our good childbearing years are still in our 20s? Do you get married multiple times if you live to be 200 years old? How might what we consider to be social progress change if no one dies? I've said it before on this show and I'll say it again, progress happens one funeral at a time. If we're talking 150-year lifespans, we're talking about people who were alive during Jim Crow-era post-Civil War Reconstruction. We're talking about people who were alive during World War I and World War II. And we're also talking about Olivia Rodrigo. Do you think we'd have made this much progress on things like gay rights, civil rights, union rights, if we were still contending with our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents over what's good and what they consider to be unnatural? Some good social progress takes generational shifting. Just a little very heavy food for thought. Now on to our next big implication of potentially living forever, the logistical. Can this planet sustain a human population that lives for longer than a century? I'm not sure. Our planet is on fire literally all the time. I'm not so sure it can support our lifestyle as it exists today for much longer, let alone our lifestyle should 100 be the new 20. There's an important question about overpopulation here. It's called a Malthusian crisis, named after the reverend and economist Thomas Robert Malthus. Malthus observed a proportional relationship between food supply and population. 
As we create tools and technologies that lead to higher crop yields, we made more babies and expanded populations. But when left unchecked, a Malthusian crisis can occur. Population growth outpaces agricultural production, causing famine or war, resulting in poverty and depopulation. Not great things, especially given how hard it's been to crack this whole mortality thing in the first place. I asked Nathan about this idea of potential overpopulation, and here's what he told me. So in, in, in you know, Canada, USA, and other wealthy nations, actually the fertility rates are, are quite low. And um, the only reason why populations are not declining is mainly because of immigration. Places like uh, Japan, obviously, like the fertility rates are, are below replacement. So actually, I think that the major threat is not overpopulation, right, in the future. It's actually underpopulation. And actually longevity, um, you know, extending human lifespan can help in this regard, uh, and especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, pensions and people requiring, you know, younger people to support them uh, because, you know, older people can no longer work, like uh, being able to extend people's functional and healthy lifespans uh, can also help in this sort of like demographic potential uh, problem. It's a satisfying answer, I will admit that much, but I just can't imagine a future in which we can all live forever and still do so in harmony and with equality. It's kind of tough to imagine. It's, it's freaking me out, in all honesty. Now, the final big implication of potentially living forever that I want to talk about today is the psychological. We've evolved as a species with the psychology of a finite number of years. Even before Drake told us that we only live once, we long understood that our time on this Earth is not infinite. To extend the human experience of living beyond 100 or even 150 years would severely impact our perception of, well, being alive. Would experiences lose their meaning if we knew we had countless more ahead of us? Would the prospect of infinite time breed more nihilism? Would anything matter? Or would the idea of having more time give us cover to fail and start over as many times as it takes? To me, this begets a more existential question. Do we really want to live longer? Or do we just want to live more meaningfully, more completely? I don't really know. But I do know that my life would look very different if I knew I would make it to the year 2146. As both my AP biology teacher and you know, I am not someone particularly given to science, but I think this conversation is about a lot more than just furthering the science that might help us live longer and healthier lives. It's about asking ourselves and honestly answering this question. Do we really want to live forever? There is a stark and unbelievably important difference between living forever and being forever young. I'm about to turn 27 years old, which is by any measure still very young, but already I feel that creeping sensation of age. My knees hurt a little more than they used to. I have this unexplained back pain every now and then, and I had to increase the font size on my computer. Science might be able to solve for all of that. But what about the aspects of aging that feel much more important than wrinkles and joint pain? Aging is as mental as it is physical, and in some ways, that's one of the most brilliant parts of being alive. We collect experiences knowing that we might never experience them again. We get smarter, we make mistakes that we actually learn from, and we make the most of what we have and who we have. The oldest recorded person who ever lived, Jean Calment, died at 122 years old, 
alone, and in a nursing home in France. She was very quickly buried, laid to rest without any close relatives in attendance, because they had all been dead for more than three decades. To live forever means nothing without friends, family, and partners to do it with. I cannot even stomach the idea of living forever without the people I love today by my side. I don't think I want to live forever, but even in that statement, there's reticence. I'm 26 years old. I don't want to live forever. But to think that my parents, who are most certainly not in their 20s, might someday not be here, you can hear it in my voice. I I can't imagine it without breaking into tears. I want them to always be here. I want my sister and my best friend and my dogs to always be here. But perhaps the lingering question in all of this is whether I would feel such deep emotional attachment to the people and the places I call home if I knew that I would never have to say goodbye. I think in some ways our mortality is what makes life worth living. It's what makes life good and hard and meaningful. Last week I asked on Twitter, if it were scientifically feasible, would you want to live forever? 632 people voted, and 58.4% of them said no. The reply that left me the most deeply impressed was this one from Derek Kubitschek. He said, time is valuable because it is scarce. As soon as we live forever, we cease to live at all. Many who write in the New York Times or the New Yorker or the Financial Times of the pursuit to evade death or to opt out of aging cite Jorge Luis Borges's The Immortal. The lesson in The Immortal, in that seminal piece, was that life itself draws meaning from the inevitability of death. It's a lesson that art and literature and the films Tuck Everlasting and Twilight have taught us time and again. Living forever, even if it were possible, might not really be living at all. I want you to think about it. Think about living forever. Think about immortality and health and the perfect lifespan. Ask yourself and your friends and your family, if you could live forever, even just an extra 50 years, what would you do at that time? Can we trust ourselves to be good stewards of the years we're given, regardless of how many of them there are? Do you think about extending your life when you take care of your mind and body every day? Is it fair to say, I don't want to die, but I also don't want to live forever? If you agree with that statement, might you change your mind when you reach your twilight years? How do you think the prospect of living for a very long time would change your ideas about marriage, work, children, politics, and everything? If anyone could live forever, who deserves it most? How do we ensure that immortality is equitable? Can it be at all? Good luck out there, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Reach out and share your thoughts, and then when we're all in our hundreds, we can meet up for a turn of the millennium party. I'll bring the snacks and the drinks, you bring the thoughtful conversation. I'm Kinsey Grant, and remember, thinking is cool, and so are you. I'll see you next time.